This morning we are jumping back into our sermon series called Every Square Inch. Um, It's taken from a a quote that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, There's a man named Abraham Kuyper, and he was known in his day as Abraham the Great. He was the founder of one of the world's premier research universities. It's still uh, one of those premier research universities. It's called the, the Free University of Amsterdam. He was a member of parliament, and he served as the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. He had his PhD in philosophy, and he was a professor in both literature and in theology. So Abraham Kuyper was quite the the fellow. At the opening ceremony for the Free University, which he founded, Kuyper gave a speech in which he issued the following statement. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Kuyper was in essence arguing against what has oftentimes been called the sacred-secular dichotomy. In other words, what he was saying is there's no such thing as some things that are secular and some things that are sacred. Instead, every square inch of our existence belongs to God. It's all sacred, whether that's work or family, home, politics, science, the list goes on and on. It's all sacred because God is the author of it all. Over the next four weeks, we'll be working through a sermon series. Again, we're entitling it Every Square Inch because we believe that every square inch of our human experience is sacred, that it all belongs to God. Three weeks ago, we looked at how our minds, our thinking belongs to God, right? We're told that we're to take every thought captive to Christ. And then two weeks ago, Jeff Summers preached on how our families belong to God as well. And today, we'll be looking at particularly how that applies to our work. Just a reminder that every square inch belongs to Him. Now, we also have on the table as you are leaving today, there's a little table in the foyer with little magnets that have this image, this every square inch image on it. And you can take it and stick it in your fridge at home, or you can put it somewhere in your car, wherever you want to do it. Or you can take it and put it on one of your friend's cars without them knowing it. That's fine too. Anyway, but it's just a reminder that everything that we do is sacred. Every single thing we do is sacred. Now, in just a moment, we're going to be watching a scene from Martin Scorsese's movie in 2011 called Hugo. Maybe some of you guys remember this movie, Hugo. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning five. It was nominated for three Golden Globes that won one. The story is set in Paris in 1931. There's a young orphan whose name is Hugo, He lives in a train station, and he maintains the clocks. In the scene that we're about ready to watch, Hugo and another orphan, Isabel, look out over the magnificent city of Paris, and they contemplate purpose. They contemplate calling, and they even contemplate brokenness. Now, just so you know, those of you who are joining us online, uh, the screen for you guys online is going to go black, unfortunately. Uh, But for those of you in the room, you're going to be watching this scene between Hugo and Isabel as they discuss, again, vocation, purpose, brokenness, and calling. Let me take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you that we can know and believe that everything we do is sacred, that it all matters to you, that that every little bit of our smaller stories are woven into your larger story. I pray that we would see that, that we would understand it, and I pray that it would even fuel the way that we live and we work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For those of you guys who haven't seen that movie, I definitely recommend it. It's a great little movie. There's a, there are any number of other storylines that go throughout it as well. But part of what we see in that clip and is what we're going to talk about this morning, which is this, that as humans, 
God created us to work. Each of us has a purpose, a calling. Now, the problem is that sin has deeply impacted our relationship to work, and yet when we work as God intended for us to work, our lives are blessed and we're satisfied. And when we don't work as God intended us to work, then we end up miserable and we end up unfulfilled. Let's start with that first clause. As human beings, we were created to work. We're going to look at Genesis 2 and a few different verses through in, uh, throughout Genesis 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, I think any of you in this room this morning know that the core question of our day is identity, right? That is the number one question. Go to YouTube, go to Instagram, go wherever you want, and the issue is identity. Who am I? That used to be the question was, who am I? I would discover who I was supposed to be. Now the question has changed a little bit, and now it's, who will I choose to be? Another way of thinking about that question is, who or what is my authentic self? Western culture currently offers answers to these questions in the form of gender and in terms of sexuality. That same culture also offers answers related to race and ethnicity. And in part, each of those answers has some truth in it, but none of them is actually primary. There's actually an identity that is far more essential to who we are, and that is this. Our identity is that we are created in the image of God. I don't know if you saw that coming out in that clip, but Hugo, uh, when she, Isabel, asks him a question about what he's created to do, he says that he uh, is like his father. His father was created to fix, fix things. And then she said, maybe I'd know who, if, who I was as well if I had known my parents. We are created in the image of our father. The Imago Dei is our essential being. In Genesis 1 and 2, that being is immediately linked with our doing. It comes next. In fact, I would argue that those two things, being and doing, are totally inseparable. We were created to work. That's why Dorothy Sayers, the old mystery author, in her book, Creed or Chaos, could say the following. She said this, what is the Christian understanding of work? That's what we're here today to talk about, to think about. It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. Let me say that one more time. Work is not uh, primarily a thing one does to live, but the, one, uh, the thing one lives to do. For some of you who feel stuck in jobs that you hate, or you feel like they're not a fit for who you, you are, this quote might feel a little bit jarring this morning. Maybe it even feels preposterous. That can't be true. But let's dig in a little bit deeper and let's see if Dorothy Sayers is right. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we see God at work. He's creating the universe, planets and stars, the sun and the moon. And then we see God continuing his labor, filling the earth with plants and with animals. And then finally, God creates Adam and Eve in his image and assigns them a vocation, a calling, a job to continue the work that he had begun. That was what they were to do. It's what we are to do. There are several ways to describe our work as it reflects God's work. 
In Every Good Endeavor, a book by Tim Keller, he describes uh, work as the following three things. He says that work is comprised of creation, it's comprised of care, and it's comprised of commission. God creates the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. He then cares for the world that he has created, and finally he commissions Adam and Eve to continue the work that he has begun. We as humans are then invited into the work that fits into these categories. We take the raw materials of the earth, and we create microchips and minivans. Some of us care for the world that God has created through nursing and through landscaping. Others of us spend our lives commissioning others into the work that God has prepared for them to do. These are our educators, our managers, and even our parents. As we engage in our work, we not only provide for ourselves or for our families, as we engage in our work, we bring flourishing into other people's lives. Does that make sense? When we work well, we make life good. We make it satisfying for others, and we ultimately create culture. In our work, we are a reflection of who God is because we're created in His image. We create, we care, we commission. Another way, way to understand our work is that we are bringing order out of chaos or bringing order to chaos. Christian counselor Dan Allender and Old Testament professor Trimper Longman use this language to describe everyone's vocation in the world. In the same way that God brought order from chaos, we too bring order out of the chaos of the world when we accurately reflect God's image through our work. Healthcare workers bring order to the chaos of broken physiology. Psychologists and counselors bring order to the chaos of broken psychology and broken relationships. Business people bring order to the chaos of broken supply chains. They make sure that we have milk and bread and lumber with which to create the homes in which we live. And elementary school teachers, well, I'll just let you think about the order uh, that they bring out of chaos. I think you know the answer to that question. One more point that is vitally important here is to notice that work existed before the fall. Work existed before sin entered into the world, and so what that means is that work is good. In fact, it means that our work, your work, is holy. It is sacred. It's not something to be escaped. It's not something to be avoided, but rather it is actually something to be embraced. So if that's true, then why is work such a source of suffering and pain and toil for so many of you, for so many of us? Let's look now at the second point. The second point is this. The reason for that is because sin has deeply impacted our work. Let's look at Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. This is God basically saying, like, here are the results of your rebellion. Here's the results of the fall. You chose this, and now here's what you get. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field, not the garden, but the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. We may not have intuitively understood initially that we were created to work, but we definitely experientially and intuitively understand this point. 
We've all experienced the misery and the frustration of work. That might explain why in a recent Gallup poll uh, across 140 different countries, only 13% of the respondents stated that they actually enjoy and find fulfillment in their work. That's a tiny number. And that 13% is actually up from 11% in 2010. That same Gallup poll study showed that 63% of the respondents were unengaged and unmotivated with their work, while 24% were actively disengaged or disengaging from their work. In other words, they hated their jobs, and they were trying to avoid working all together. Why is that? Because again, if those numbers apply to those of us in this room, then there's only a few of us that really enjoy going to work, and there's a lot of us that are either really bored with work or trying to avoid it all together. We've already spoken about one reason for why that is. That's because we often fail to realize that our smaller stories very much fit into God's larger story. So when we work at even the most menial jobs, remember, Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years. Remember, at the beginning, God was a gardener. We are revealing and reflecting God. We are serving others. We're creating flourishing, and we're creating, and we are sustaining culture. In other words, every little thing we do matters. If you remember, Nietzsche said this. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. That's definitely true when it comes to work. Another reason that people have such a fraught relationship with work is because of the thorns and thistles that we see in verse 18 of the passage we just read. Our work, whether it's gardening or parenting, is like that shopping cart at Kroger with the broken wheel. Are you familiar with the shopping cart of which I speak? I get it 50% of the time. Keller addresses the fact of vocational brokenness in his book on work called Every Good Endeavor. I've got a stack of those books up here. He writes this, as we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2, God made us for work, yet now we learn that work becomes under sin painful toil. Work is not itself a curse, but it now lies with all other aspects of human life under the curse of sin. Thorns and thistles will come up as we seek to grow food. When we remember that gardening is representative of all kinds of human labor and culture building, this is a statement that all working human effort will be marked by frustration and a lack of fulfillment. It's a great quote. It's a true quote. It's no wonder that so many people hate their work. It's cursed. It's painful. It's toil. It's labor. Success mostly comes by the sweat of our brow, and it's filled with thorns and it's filled with thistles. In other words, our work bears fruit, but it also produces these thorns and thistles that fight against us and actually hurt us in the process. If you're a real farmer or even a backyard gardener, you know this to be true. It's no less true for educators or business leaders or for lawyers or for mothers. Each knows very well the toil and the pain of their work. Since the fall, our work is cursed so the question is, if it's cursed, why should we not just give up? The answer is our third point today. It's because of this. It's because when we work as God intended for us to work, our lives are blessed, and we experience satisfaction, a blessing and a satisfaction, by the way, that actually doesn't happen apart from our vocation and labor. And when we don't 
work as God intended us to work, we end up miserable, we end up unfulfilled, we end up unsatisfied and feeling empty in life. Now, at this point, very intentionally, I want to move away from the realm of the theoretical and the philosophical. There's a ton more to say about each of those categories around work. We're going to move instead to the realm of the very practical. I'm going to take a look at the book of Proverbs so that we can see about work there. Again, Proverbs is very practical. Verse 24 of chapter 12 has this to say, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Those who work hard or diligently will eventually be entrusted with authority. Now, there's a tongue-in-cheek idiom in the management world that says the following. It says, the reward for good work is more work. In other words, if you do a good job working, your boss is going to give you more work to do. In the short run, that might be irritating, but in the long run, good work leads to promotions, and those promotions eventually lead to positions of authority, and it's from those positions of authority that we have the ability to shape culture itself for the flourishing of others. Eugene Peterson's The Message, a translation of the Bible, does a good job of capturing the other half of this proverb. So I'm going to read verse 24 as he has interpreted it. it says this, the diligent find freedom in their work. The lazy are oppressed by work. He does a great picture of a painting of that picture. In short, what he's saying is, is if you have an unhealthy relationship with work, not only will you not be given authority, you'll be oppressed and even enslaved by your work. Quick example of this. Middle school, I was a fine little student. High school, I was an okay student because I didn't have to do very much. Um, I didn't love school at any point in time, even in high school. I just kind of did enough to get by. And so as a result, it was a little bit of you know, suffering and misery. Maybe that's true or was true for some of you out there today. When I got to college, probably my first year and a half, I also wasn't a great student. I just did enough to kind of get by. And then I had this realization um, at the end of my sophomore year, and the realization was this, that I had a few different buddies, both of whom now have their PhDs, who actually actively engaged their studies. They worked hard, they studied hard, and as a result, they loved school. It was really interesting. And so I decided to give that a try, literally. Like, that's kind of how I thought about it. And I thought, well, I'm going to try my best for a little while. And I started my junior year really studying. I started reading ahead. I started really sort of engaging in the debates and the discussions around the various classes that I took. And what I found was that for my junior and senior year of college, uh, this, the work of my being a student went from being something that was miserable to something that I absolutely loved and enjoyed. I think that's a great picture of how we view our work, right? One way of viewing work, whether that work is being a student or, or some, anything else, is that if you view it negatively, it can really become oppressive. The other way of viewing it is that if you embrace it and give yourself to it, it can be life-giving and satisfying. I'm going to go on really quickly here. Not only does hard work result in being entrusted with authority, diligent work also results in wealth, according to the Proverbs. Proverbs 24, verse 27 says this, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. While it's true, admittedly, that some economies are so broken that hard work doesn't always necessarily yield wealth, in general, diligent work does result in financial success. In fact, the reason why Marxism didn't take hold in 20th century England was precisely for this reason. The masses of British blue-collar workers were experiencing wealth and comfort like never before as a result of capitalism, so Marx's philosophy fell upon deaf and contented ears. 
This principle is also true for millions of immigrants who've arrived in America with nothing. And in one short generation, they own businesses and they arrive in the middle and upper classes. In the last 30 years, immigrants from Nigeria, just as an example, to America have increased by 1,500%. The average Nigerian American family's income now outpaces that of Caucasian Americans by over $5,000 a year. And 61% of Nigerian Americans over the age of 25 hold graduate degrees. In other words, hard work still matters. It still yields. Their diligence as a culture has led to amazing flourishing for themselves and for their families. Now, on the other hand, this proverb and many others teach that laziness and sloth ultimately lead to hunger and to want. Food is within their grasp, but the slothful won't even reach out to take it. I could go on packing these verses at length, but instead, let me just rattle off a couple more Proverbs, and then even a passage from Ecclesiastes to make this point. Proverbs 22, 29 says this, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. Good, skillful work leads to honor. Proverbs 28 says, Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. Those who work diligently will be filled and will be satisfied. They will even have abundance, and those who don't will end up in poverty. I could go on and on, but let me finish with some wise words from the author of Ecclesiastes who says this, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This is from the hand of God. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. Perhaps the greatest takeaway from connecting our work to God's work is that when we're able to do that, our work, our vocations, our callings become deeply meaningful and they become existentially satisfying. There are any number of books um, that I'd love for people at Seven Hills Fellowship to read. One of them is The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. I've quoted it before. Lawrence served as a cook so a very low menial position in a Carmelite monastery in 17th century France. And one of the things that stands out in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, is his view of work. In it, he writes this, it is not necessary to have great things to do. Let that sit in, sink in for just a minute. Changing diapers, cooking meals, cleaning things. It's not necessary to have great things to do. I turn my little omelet in the pan For the love of God, when it is finished, if I have nothing to do, I prostrate myself on the ground and adore my God, who gave me the grace to make it, after which I arise more content than a king. When I cannot do anything else, it is enough for me to have lifted a straw from the earth from the love of God. I wonder if it was his situation that enabled him to be content, or if it was his heart. I think we know the answer. There's so much more to discuss. What about rest? What about making work an idol? What about a job that isn't a fit for us? What about a job that isn't a fit for who God created me to be? How do I choose my vocation? Does being a homemaker count? Does being a student count? The answer is yes. Does work have to be a paid position? The answer is no. What about retirement? If you're interested in any of these questions, I recommend this book, Every Good Endeavor. I've got, again, some copies up here. I'm leading a book club at Bella Roma on Thursdays, and Amber Weaver is leading a similar uh, group on Tuesday nights at Swift. If you're interested, you can go to the Connections tab on our website. 
Love to give you a book. Love to, to invite you to be part of those discussions. But let me end this sermon not by pointing you to Tim Keller, but instead by pointing you to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus came to earth with a job to do, to reveal his Father, to redeem his children, and to defeat evil. And on the night before he went to the cross, we read this. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That's the honor that we read about in Proverbs, that your son may glorify you. Jesus saw his job as glorifying the Father, pointing people to his Father. Verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. We have a job to do, and whatever it is, it belongs to God every square inch. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, this is such a deep idea, and it's a concept, Father, that we flee from and run from and hide from. And yet, Father, in the same way that we hide from so many things and avoid so many things that ultimately would lead us to satisfaction if we let them, Father, work is one of those things. And so, Father, I pray that this morning um, that we would indeed remember that we have been created to work, Father, and that our work, um, when we engage in it, actually reveals and represents who you are and brings us satisfaction, Father. We know that it's tainted by sin and the fall, Father. And so when it's exhausting and when it's painful, Father, and when we're tempted to give up, Father, I pray that we would hang on. And Father, I pray that as we hang on and do the work that you've called us to do, I pray, Father, that you would um, bring us peace, that you would bring us satisfaction and fulfillment Father, I pray that as we do our work well, Father, that we would create culture. Father, that our work would create flourishing and thriving for other people as well, Father. I pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.